You're listening to a very special inaugural episode of The Visual Voice, a new podcast brought to you by NPPA's News Photographer Magazine. The topic, Washington Post's rare visual look at the devastation caused by AR-15 shootings, could not be more relevant and judicious. I am your host, Lori King, and joining me via Zoom are two visual editors and reporters at The Post who were instrumental in the collection of dozens of hand-curated visuals for a special investigative story called Terror on Repeat, which ran online in The Post on November 16th and in a special 44-page section in the printed edition on Sunday, December 3rd. Thank you, Kanaz Amaria and Nick Kirkpatrick, for joining me on the show. But before we get into the Q&A, I want to tell our listeners a little bit about who you both are. Kanaz has been the National Visual Enterprise Editor at The Post since 2022. Even though you've only been there about 18 months, you've certainly made an impact in such a short amount of time. Anyway, you're the first ever visuals editor for Vox and a supervising visuals editor and multimedia producer and trainer in NPR. Nick has been a visual journalist at The Post since 2013 with a focus on integrated storytelling. They collaborate across the newsroom to report and produce visually driven stories told in interactive forms that blend text with photos and videos, graphics and illustrations. I'm about to get graphic here because I want to warn our listeners that we are going to talk about dozens of published images and videos the Post painstakingly chose that documented multiple mass shooting scenes over the past decade. Images of pooled, smattered and smeared blood, blood covered shoes, tables, chairs, children's lesson plans, popcorn, bullet-ridden Bibles and church pews, vehicles, beer cans and water bottles and clothes, holes through metal doors, hundreds of evidence markers, bullets and casings and drum magazines, as well as piles of guns left behind by the killers. Videos of screaming and moaning victims and crying kids with their hands raised in the air as they are rescued by the police. You'll even see one photo of body bags lining a hallway at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. But what you won't see? Bodies torn apart by the bullets. That would be too much. MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell recently put it so succinctly on his show, The Last Word, when he said, the Washington Post has finally decided to do something that has been debated for years in the news business, publishing a news report on mass murder in America's schools and churches and theaters that includes crime scene photographs that the news media deliberately does not include in coverage of those events. So let's get into that. Kinaz, let's start with you. For more than a year, your newspaper has been reporting on the role of the AR-15 in American life. Terror on Repeat is the latest story in that series. For that piece, Sally Busby, the Post's executive editor, began the story with an explanation on why the Post took the unusual step of publishing photos and videos taken during the immediate aftermath of the most deadly mass shootings on record. Can you take us back to the beginning when it was decided something had to be done to help wake up this country? What were those conversations like? Well, first of all, Lori, thanks so much for having us. It's it's really exciting to be part of the inaugural um, podcast. Uh, and uh, I do want to start by saying Terror on Repeat, which is the most is the most recent story um, part of uh, a series uh, that the Washington Post published earlier this year, looking at the impact of the AR-15 on American life. 
this story came after a really incredible response from our readers from a story titled Blast Effect that Nick, um, I'd love for you to jump in here because you were the reporter on that, where um, we did a graphic illustrations of the impact of a bullet uh, that propels out of an AR-15 into the body and what that does, how that propulsion of a bullet out of an AR-15 destroys organs. Um, Nick, am I categorizing that in the right way? Yeah, absolutely. Then thank you, uh, Lori, for having us. Very grateful to get to talk about uh, our reporting here. So the story that that uh, Kainaz is referencing was a, a piece that uh, uh, I reported where through illustrations, we, we looked at the impact of high-velocity rounds fired by AR-15-style rifles on the human body. And we told this story through the lens of two victims, Noah Posner, who, who died in Sandy Hook, and Peter Wang of Parkland. Through the reporting of this story, we, we consulted with the family members of the victims um, to try and balance and illustrate really specific destructive force of this weapon. And the reaction to that piece sort of prompted further conversations in our newsroom with readers responding to that piece, uh, saying that we were actually sanitizing uh, what the impact of uh, these high velocity rounds do inside uh, the body, that by using the illustrations that we we did, we, we didn't show the full extent of this damage. You know, while we sort of cover these tragedies and we, we typically don't publish, as you said, these, these gruesome and graphic imagery of, of crime scenes. And, and so this sort of spurred these series of conversations over months. Uh, we sort of wrestled with what, what do we owe our readers and the public uh, about showing the extent of the damage of this weapon with, uh, you know, the very real challenge and desire to, to try and minimize as much as we possibly can any further harm to the family members and survivors uh, of these shootings. So th these, these conversations were over a, a series of months with senior editors, executive editors. Through those conversations, we ended up with the, publishing the piece that, that uh, we reported that, yeah, tear on repeat. When did that article run? I believe it was in March. Uh, and I and I will say, sort of circling back to your initial question, Lori, you know, like any sort of reporting journey, we ask ourselves questions. And one of the questions that we asked ourselves is, is there anything more to say or show? You know, is there something more out there that we haven't told or or we haven't presented in order for people to gain a deeper understanding on how this particular weapon obliterates a scene? I mean, in your really eloquent introduction, you talked about a lot of quotidian um, things that you saw in these photographs, right? You talked about popcorn and water bottles and lesson plans and pews. And these are spaces that pretty much any American walks in and out of throughout their everyday lives. And so one of the questions that we had was, is there anything more to understand with, uh, you know, a, an incident where a gunman takes an AR-15 into these places and essentially um, changes them forever? Nick, you were part of a team of reporters who wrote the story uh, in November can you tell us about your role as one of those reporters? And did you also help collect the quotes from the survivors and the witnesses? And if you did, even if you didn't, which of their comments uh, still sticks with you today? And that question can probably go to both of you. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I sort of play a unique role uh, in our newsroom where I am a visual reporter. So a lot of uh, the stories that I work and report on are driven by visuals uh, as as well as I do a lot of, of, of writing. And so for this story, I was involved within the uh, collection of of the of the imagery and the reporting off of the imagery, and as well as interviewing some survivors uh, alongside my my co-reporters Sylvia Foster Frau and uh, Aralise Hernandez. And I think you know what's particularly unique about this story is is that um, we allowed the visuals to help drive the reporting and ultimately the presentation of this piece. So I think to me, what I would say the takeaway is the the similarities that we found between a lot of these testimonies. In particular, a description from Sandy Hook matched visuals that we saw from Uvalde. And it was eerily similar. In some ways, a lot of the descriptions were indescribable, you know, and I'll, I'll let kind of speak, speak a little bit more to, you know, our process there. Uh, Nick and I, um, I mean, just a little bit about that, the process, Lori, early on is that we would meet as a group every week, sometimes every other week, look at all the visual uh, material collected from one specific mass shooting. And and then another week, we would look at all the material from another mass shooting. And uh, there was a point, I think, where Nick and I were able to sit down together after weeks and weeks of of looking at this material and 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 starting to see a visual language come out of what we're looking at. We are looking at photos that span decades, but a lot of them looked very similar. And they're starting to become sort of singular events, even though it comprised of so many different events. And that sort of, um, the first thing we did was we put all of those photos together from different mass shootings to create this sort of visual spine that then we sat back and looked at and said, huh, okay, this is, this is compelling. This feels different because we see, and when we talk about these mass shootings, they're singular events sort of uh, encased in amber. And we, we talk about them in a very specific time. This, uh, this process allowed us to look at these mass shootings collectively as a very specific tragedy and terror that's happened in the past 10 years and also pulled the sort of similarities. Once we found that in the visual spine um, and as um, Erelise and Nick and Sylvia went out to report and gather all of the witness testimony, we recognized that there were similarities in the witness testimony, just like we saw in the visuals. And so that sort of made us realize this is this is the oral history um, where we can put together something singular that's comprised of 11 very specific events. And that's, I think, um, the moment where we thought that we did have something new to offer our audience in understanding uh, this very American phenomenon. I got to tell you, Nick, I, I think you went through this too. I mean, we we sat with this reporting and lived with this reporting for months. Um, and so at any given point, there were times when um, Rusty Duncan, who was a voluntary fireman in Sutherland Springs, when his words were ringing in my head. And then other times it was, you know, Arnolfo Reyes's uh, words ringing in my head, who was a teacher that survived Uvalde. Um, 
uh, so I, I sort of held all of these people in my heads for a really long time with what they saw and what they experienced. I think some of the, the strongest points are like uh, Nick said, uh, when um, someone is describing what they saw uh, in a in a Sandy Hook classroom, and it, it it felt very similar to a scene that we saw in the Uvalde classroom. It was those moments where the decades that span these shootings shrinked into one singular experience that I that I found pretty powerful. Looking at all of those photos, I know I asked you about any quotes that stuck with you. Are there photos that are sticking with you? Hmm. Even though it's hard to pinpoint them because there are so many and they, every single one of them was devastating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it's hard to pinpoint a singular photograph that sticks with you, but I would say that almost all of them have, even the ones we ultimately didn't publish. Particularly... I will say that I think the uh, some of the photos from Uvalde are photos that we have never seen before. I cannot unsee them. Uh, I think those are some of the strongest ones. And having been a photojournalist as well as a photo editor for a really long time, I have published and edited quite a few um, really difficult photos from a lot of news events. But when we saw a hallway full of body bags of children in Uvalde. It took all of our breath away. I think it's safe to say that it was um, something that we hadn't seen before. And um, the body bags lined up um, with little specks of blood on the linoleum, linoleum floor in a in in such a you know such a. Um, I mean, I have a, a two-year-old son and I know that I'll be taking him into a classroom and into a hallway that looks very similar. It very much, um, I, I think about that photo a lot. I think about it a lot. I think when we when we saw that photo collectively as a group, and, and I, I, do, I do want to say that this really was a collaborative process through and through, um, and not just with us visual editors, but with editors with word editors and with um the other reporters but I, I would say that when we saw that picture of body bags in the hallway we we all just were quiet for a minute and I think we stepped back and we said oh well that's that that illustrates everything that we've been seeing it illustrates all of, everything from all, all of the other shootings in in a singular image that really I think impacted a lot of us and and to kind of this point, I think that the seeing the images from Uvalde in particular were will be what stuck with me the most. Uh, the backpacks sitting on a coat rack with blood underneath them. And bullet holes in the wall beside them. Bullet holes in the wall beside them. The the desks clustered together. I think they all tell a story of the terror and the dis- the, the destructiveness that that happened in in these classrooms and in, in a way that we hadn't seen before. If you, I've looked through every single image that they released from Sandy Hook, and 
uh, nowhere do they show what these images show. We have descriptions of them from law enforcement officials. So you can read that in the end of a towards the end of our piece describing a bathroom in classroom 10 uh, in and that clearly, uh, but we, none of the images actually show anything remotely like that. I think the image that affected me the most was the video. It was a vertical video shot by someone's phone during the event at one of the schools where you can hear um, girls uh, screaming, um, moaning, and the alarm, the fire alarm is just going off. And <laughs> it's like you heard the chaos inside the school as it happened. And you heard the gunfire in the background. That had everything in it. And to, to see and hear that was pretty powerful. How many images did your staff collect total and how many did you end up using? Well, I would say we we looked at over ten thousand images easily, and we've and we've scrubbed through and played over a hundred hours of video uh, for this this project. Uh, so that's just to give you a span of what we looked at to try and understand uh, the story and to try and tell this story. And what we ultimately uh, edited down was was a very minute fraction of that. I think there were maybe what 50 to 70 images total. Is that right, Kenes? There is about 30 photographs and um, three videos. Yeah. Uh, Kenaz, what was your process for filing more than 30 public record requests in jurisdictions where the shootings took place? How did you keep track of those requests and how long did it typically take to get a response? That had to have been a logistical nightmare. <laughs> Nick, do you want to tell Lori who did that? <laughs> Absolutely. So um... <laughs> we have an incredible person <laughs> in the newsroom whose job it is to do that. <laughs> yeah. So so we worked, worked with our uh, FOIA director, Nate Jones, who filed over 30 pu public record requests um, in many different jurisdictions that had AR-15 shootings. You know, most of the requests ultimately were rejected. Officials usually will, will cite sort of ongoing investigations or local laws that uh, prevent the, re the, the release of a lot of this information. Only a, a fraction of our, our public records requests were, 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 were honored, uh, including Dayton, Ohio, uh, Aurora, and Las Vegas. And a lot of, a lot of the actual releases of, of, of these records came from lawsuits that were that were filed, uh, such as in Las Vegas, and then as well as um, trials that that happened in, in in Aurora. So all of those images were released because of um, the trial there. Now, this question is for both of you. On a personal level, how did you mentally prepare for putting together that three-part series? So much of what we do as visual reporters requires us to be observers, uh, to buckle down do our jobs, report objectively, document indiscriminately. Not that long ago, secondary and tertiary trauma uh, was really never talked about. We actually didn't know there were words for it at that time, like post-traumatic stress disorder, or like I've called it for many years, post-traumatic news disorder. Picked your writers after all are not immune, 
Uh, how did you both and the team navigate the trauma of reviewing all of those horrific visuals? Yeah. So um, one of the first things we did before we looked at any of any of these Im images was uh, we participated in a training led by the DART Center uh, for Journalism and Trauma. And they sort of walked us through what the best practices were for, for viewing a lot of these these uh, images and how how publishing them could affect us and and our readers um, and a lot of a lot of what we learned there uh, were limiting limiting our exposure to them and limiting the amount of time uh, we spend looking at them and when we look at them um, and so we were very deliberate in deciding when as a group we would look at at a lot of these images and who was in the room to, to look at them perhaps you want to go into a little bit more detail about that kind of. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to say that, you know, every step of the process, we made it clear to anyone if it was overwhelming, if it wasn't the right day, if it, you know, if it wasn't right the hour in the day, or even if it wasn't the right story for them to be a part of, they could, they could opt out. This wasn't a case where we, you know, it was very much a here's what we're attempting to do. I feel like everyone made their own calculations on um, why they they continued to be a part of the story. For me personally, I'm happy to, my calculation is the, the fact that, you know, I have a son, I'm a new mom, and I remember growing up in California, uh, not doing active shooter drills <laughs> in school. I remember doing earthquake preparedness drills, but uh, it seems to be, it's very common now for parents to talk about their children after they come home from, you know, doing one of these drills. I think about my son, Asa, having to learn what to do if a gunman comes in with a gun. And that kept me in the room because really as journalists, all um, our mission is to report anything revelatory that we can share with the public about issues. That's always kept me in journalism. That was that was my personal calculus. I know it's only been less than a month since the second series aired. I think the first part was in March. It was actually a sort of multi-part. There's a handful of stories that published in, in, in March all at once. Yeah, the, this, this story published over a week ago. Does this story keep you up at night? I, I will say for me, it has kept me up at night before we published, but I'd say after we published, I feel very relieved. feel relieved that I can share the burden of this with everyone. That though we didn't publish everything that we've seen, I think ending it with the, the fact that we are sharing this burden collectively not not now not only do do we have to hold this as reporters and editors seeing uh a lot of these images and 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 videos but now we as a society gets get gets a share in that and in, in holding that burden for me particularly Lori, i um folks in in your organization um might know me for being a fairly squeaky wheel um on what was formerly known as Twitter in, in being very vocal on, on the care that, and sometimes the callousness in which we publish uh, images of trauma and destruction, particularly of people 
um, who aren't American or, you know, mostly black and brown bodies abroad. So I have been um, extremely vocal of, of my thoughts ethically on, on some of our industry's practices. And so I, I did have to really calibrate myself repeatedly in this project. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I stayed was because of the thoughtfulness in um, speaking to communities that have been impacted by this type of violence, the thoughtfulness in the care of uh, our fellow reporters and how we collectively viewed this material, um, as well as the thoughtfulness in the context in which we published these photographs and videos. Again, they stand on the shoulder of, you know, many stories that come before it that really looks at the history of AR-15 uh, in particular, and and all of the reporting that we've done, it felt like if we were to endeavor to push the needle forward on what we're asking Americans to see, it needs a lot of context and a lot of thought around it. And so, you know, I, I think it's really important for new news organizations to not just consider singular stories, um, but also consider you know, reporting out so much that goes beyond just that singular story. And I felt more comfortable staying with the project because of the work my colleagues had done in this series before I started to work on this story. And um, I know that there is another story in this series coming uh, soon. And and so it's something that we'll continue to, to work on. Can I piggyback off that a little bit? Because I think that that's a really important point that China has made that it's, not just the story, but the entire series that we we stand on the shoulders of. And it's also the care that I think that we put into the reporting and in and into uh, how we're engaging with the communities that are directly impacted by by this. I would say it was really balancing our desire to show the destructiveness of this weapon with the sensitivity of the victims' families and the communities impacted by the shootings. I will say that I, I I felt really supported by our organization that we put so much care into uh, the the sensitivity of the the, the victims' families. Um, and you know, one ground rule that 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 we put a, that we we set at the starting of this reporting was that if we sought to publish any pictures of identifiable identifiable bodies, that we would seek permission from the families. Um, and so that's something you know we took really to heart. Um, my co-reporter, Sylvia Foster-Frau and Aurelis Hernandez and I, we had conversations with dozens of, of, of family members while reporting this, this series. We heard from family members that felt uh, very strongly that um, we should show, show bodies. And we've heard from family members that felt very strongly that that would be traumatizing or, or, and dehumanizing. Ultimately at, at at the end, we decided that it was really necessary for the public to get a sense of the full scope of, of the destruction of this weapon. But I think that the care we put into having these conversations with the communities and the family members uh, really influenced how how we told this story. I think that you know even to to the point at when before we published, we we took the step to alert communities that that we were publishing the story. We reached out to eleven different communities from these shootings, and we wanted to give them a chance to avoid seeing this project if they chose not to see it. And so I think that that, that approach to our story and that approach to the way that we talked with and consulted with the people that 
uh, know the story better than anyone else. It made me feel a lot better when we published it. Let's talk about feedback your newspaper has received since the story was published a few weeks ago, particularly people in political power in D.C. Uh, have they've been responsive at all and how have they responded? I mean, because those are the policymakers. Those are the ones who are going to ban the AR-15s or keep them on the street. We have seen um, a few members of Congress share the story or share their thoughts on the story. But I really think, uh, you know, time will tell. I will say that uh, our series has gotten quite a quite quite a response. And back in March, uh, when we published Blast Effect, as well as a lot of the the other stories in in, in the series, there there was a handful of responses. The the stories were were cited by the California Attorney General uh, in uh, defense exhibits that were a part of a lawsuit over the California uh, Assault Weapons Control Act. I would say that there has been a, a response from people in power to our series on, o- overall. It's only been two weeks, like you said, so uh, time will tell and it will filter through. Yeah, and I think, you know, specifically Representative Barbara Lee did tweet about the story. After we published our story, uh, Bo Mitchell, uh, a Tennessee uh, lawmaker, uh, tweeted, I am filing an assault weapons ban similar to the one passed after Sandy Hook in Connecticut. If you can look at these photos and still want these weapons of war on our street, that just confirms we also need a red flag law in Tennessee. And then shared a link to our story. You're moving the needle. I will say we've gotten an overwhelmingly um, appreciative response from our readers across the board, which spans from people sharing that they had to cry, had to stop reading, had to cry and go back to it because they felt it was important to see. Some readers thought that it still did not go far enough. It seemed like other readers really appreciated our um, transparency with with how we reported the story. And so um, overwhelmingly, the, the reader response was that it was an important piece of journalism to publish, which is, it's, it's, it's very nice to hear. Well, let's talk about the incredible, overwhelming number of reader responses for a moment. A nearly 6,000 comments before the comment section was closed. Uh, as I was skimming over them, I noticed that there were um, also thousands of thank yous from your readers. Uh, I'm going to read just two. This one is from Jackie Shipley, and she wrote it back in March, quote, my family has decided that if any of us are ever gunned down in a mass shooting, we want our crime scene and autopsy pictures to be made public, even if we have to post them on social media. Maybe once people see what these weapons do, it will open our eyes. And here's another one. Uh, This one was published a couple weeks ago. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't thank you enough. I wish... I could somehow force every elected official in this country to read this article. I also wish I could force them to look at the most graphic photos of those killed in these shootings. Let them look at the destroyed little bodies of our children and then tell us that banning such weapons won't help. Thanks again, and please keep up the good work. Respectfully, James Martin. 
So, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, your reaction to these reader responses. And, and, and just to discuss some of the other responses that maybe not are as, as, as laudatory, because I don't want to make it seem like everyone. Oh, um, yeah, let's, was, let's talk about those two. Yeah, sure. was doing, but, you know, fairly a lot of people mentioned that uh, the majority of gun violence is not handgun related, which I think is very important to, to emphasize. And, and our newsroom has also done lots of reporting on that story in particular. We've broken down gun violence uh, extensively in different stories and talked about the populations who are, you know, most, uh, most impacted by that. The comments across the board aren't, aren't completely, you know, they're overwhelmingly positive. Some people felt like you could show however much you want to, but nothing will change. A lot of people um, said that, uh, or that was one of one of the um, sort of characteristics of responses. So there's a wide range of reactions, but I think we can comfortably say that overwhelmingly people were appreciative of, of the journalism that, that they experienced. Yeah, the, the people who should see this report, unfortunately, might not. <laughs> How can we change that? Uh, do you think the special coverage will move the needle? Uh, in other words, what is your ultimate hope? I think, you know, our responsibility is, as journalists is to continue to tell the story. And then we have to give the story to our audience and and then they take it from there. We give the story to elected officials and they take it from there. So it's, I think, a little naive to have hope of any initial reactions to publishing anything because you really, you don't know. And so it's just a lot easier to focus on what we can control than what we can't control. And the thing that we could control here is making sure we did the most responsible revelatory journalism that that we could do in this moment and present it in a way that was sensitive to the subject matter. Also, you know, we thought about the way the audience was going to experience this quite a bit. The editor's notes and 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 the the sort of little warnings that you saw throughout the piece on what you were going to see was, you know, that was extensively discussed to say, hey, we've decided to do this. Um, we're going to need to to help our readers going through this material themselves. That might not be the best answer, Lori, for you. <laughs> But I've been in journalism in plenty of years to to know that, you know, you can control what you can control. And, you know, all we can do is keep telling these stories in new and different ways. Well, I guess the hope is move, moving the needle a little bit. I think kind of summed that up pretty well. I think, you know, ultimately we as journalists can't con- control who sees uh, what we produce or how they walk away from it. But I think what we can control is how we tell these stories and the care that we put into it. I'm glad that our readers have recognized uh, the latter. Many, many readers have walked away uh, deeply affected by this. Ultimately, you know, we can control the care that we put into this and how we tell these stories. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that that has come across to our readers. It is Sunday, December 3rd, and it's a special day for your newspaper because Terror on Repeat became available in print today. How did you approach presenting the photos for print and how can you get a copy? Absolutely. Uh, well, if you are a print subscriber, it should the special uh, section should come in your Sunday paper. 
or you can uh, go to your newsstand and, and pick it up. I would say how we approached this, the print uh, presentation was much how we approached the online presentation. Ultimately, we found a way and how to tell this story with care and walking our readers through it every step of the way. Um, and I think we, we tried to replicate that in print. Um, I think what's missed in print is the videos. And I think for me, those videos have impacted me deeply. I think it is hard to uh, understand what it feels like to be in a shooting like this without hearing it, without uh, seeing it in real time like you do in the videos. Uh, and I think those added a lot to the presentation. But I think that what we were able to do in print really did honor to 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 what we did on online. Um, how do you feel about that kind of ask? Do you think that, that that's right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, I think a printed edition does bring in a different type of audience, maybe the older audience. You can you can take that copy and you can save it and you can share it with family members who might really need to see it, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so it's shareable. Not everybody's online. So, you know, I was happy to hear that it was being put into the printed edition. Is it its own section? Yeah, it'll be its own special section. And one of the things that we should mention is there's an incredibly wonderful reported story that ran alongside this story, Terror on Repeat, not just um, Sally Busby's letter explaining why we publish this content, but um, Isaac Stanley Becker's uh, story looking at tracing sort of the history of why a lot of these photographs are kept from the public. So Isaac's piece will lead the front page and then we will, we sort of tease from the front page to the special section. One thing I didn't ask you is what was your specific role uh, for this piece? Uh, so my role as the visual editor was to work really closely alongside other editors as well as the reporters and guide the process, you know, speak up when I thought that there was something that we might have overlooked, help create that sort of visual spine that, that we talked about earlier, and work really closely alongside designers and developers and editors and, and our reporters having conversations around the story and, you know, every step of the way. What I really enjoyed about this story was the extremely collaborative process where one person saw this, another person saw that, another person had this idea, and we all very much, you know, discussed different approaches. But because my background is in visual journalism, that was where my voice uh, sort of was used in the room, or the way I used my voice in the room was to really be that person to look at all the material and, and see if we could find something new and once we did see how how responsibly we could we could share what we found is there anything else either of you would like to say that we haven't talked about or i haven't thought to ask i love this question mm -hmm. i ask this question with every interview i conduct you know it's funny i i asked this question too but i'm more curious lori about your experience in reading it as someone that has been in the industry for a really long time and, and obviously covered uh, sort of difficult events, probably in places that you've lived. Did you feel that this was, uh, you know, a, a different moment for photojournalism? You 
as well sort of teach in, in your class and, and talk to students like uh, I'd love to know your response to, to to it. I think I told you earlier that my personal opinion was it was long overdue. I think it's our job. Your newspaper's slogan is democracy dies in darkness, right? So you are shining a light on such a dark, disturbing part of America. And that's our job. What you've done by showing us as much as you possibly could, the horrors of the AR-15. When I was looking at the photos, I was moved by them and I got angry. I got angry that this weapon is, I'm retired military and it, that weapon should not be in the hands of civilians. So when a newspaper, particularly a national newspaper like yours, shines that light on that topic, I was relieved and very proud to be a part of journalism. So thank you. Thank for you so much. Everything that your whole staff did and what you've had to endure to tell the story. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you very much on Kanaza Maria and Nick Kirkpatrick for joining me on NPPA's The Visual Voice podcast, our very first one. What's so unique about this project is that journalists do not typically get access to crime scenes, let alone publish the graphic images taken there. Uh, Having deeply reported on shootings, the AR-15 in particular, the Post saw it as a public service to give readers a window into understanding the destructive power of this weapon. I am your host, Lori King. Thank you for listening. 